Why don't you turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus? We are going to continue on. And we're looking at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We're going to be spending our time this morning on verses 11 to 15. 11 to 15. So turn to Titus chapter 2. Let's read our text. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, that we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us, that we might re- that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let me ask this question. What would the unbelieving world say about the Christian's conduct? Now imagine living in the first centuries of the church and you were asked to make observations about Christianity, what Christian conduct looked like. Well, thankfully, we have an ancient record, an ancient document that was found and it was a letter written by an unnamed man to a person named Diognetus. Named Diognetus. Diognetus was an unbeliever. He was fascinated by Christianity and he wanted to know what is Christianity like. And so this document, simply known as a letter to Diognetus, which was around 100 A.D., was discovered. And I want to read to you a a portion of that letter just to give you a glimpse of what Christianity was like very early on, around 100 A.D. This is what he said, quote, Christians are not distinguished from other men by country, language, nor by the customs which they observe. They do not inhabit cities of their own, use a particular way of speaking, nor lead a life marked out by any curiosity. The course of conduct they follow has not been devised by the speculation and deliberation of inquisitive men. They do not, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of mere human doctrines. Instead, they inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities. However, things have fallen to each of them. And it is while following the customs of the natives in clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary life that they display to us their wonderful and admittedly striking way of life. They live in their own countries, but they do so as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is like their homeland to them, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. They marry, like everyone else, and they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on the earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. End quote. What would explain the conduct of those early Christians? How is it that this man could testify that those Christians lived a, quote, wonderful and striking way of life? Here's the answer. Christians in every generation have been changed by the transforming grace of God. In every generation, Christians have always been changed by the transforming grace of God. And this morning, I hope to show that God's grace saves us, transforms us, purifies us, and protects us. God's grace saves us, transforms us, purifies, and protects us. Now, in our text, we're beginning in verse 11, we have to remember the background, which is this passage begins with a four, explaining what happened previously in the first ten verses, where in those ten verses, Titus is giving instruction to all kinds of people, the older men, the older women, the younger men, and the younger women, and then the slaves. And then Titus himself, he's 
receiving instruction. And this is in contrast to the kind of people that were living on this island where they were known as lazy, gluttonous, uh, lying beasts is how they were described. So in our text, God is giving us a picture of how God's grace saves us, transforms us, purifies us, and protects us. So the first thing we want to look at is how God's grace saves us. God's grace saves us in verse 11. The verse says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now just a few observations about grace. Grace, which means it's from God, it's of God, it means that God is the one who bestows grace. Now what is saving grace? How can we define this thing called saving grace? Here's how I would define it. Saving grace is the divine favor that is unmerited and freely given. It's unmerited favor and freely given. It's unmerited, which means that we don't work for it. You don't work and receive grace so that somehow you will become right with God. It's completely of God. And this is troubling for some people. Sometimes when I share the gospel with someone, or if I am talking to a new believer about God's grace... I I tell them that salvation is of grace and it's all of God. And this is what they tell me. Wait, wait, wait. It's almost like you're telling me that salvation is all of God. And I say to them, absolutely. You have no part in your salvation. And these will sometimes say to me, wait, wait. I must have a part. I must have a contribution. Isn't my faith a contribution to the work of salvation in my life? And the answer is absolutely not. The only thing you contributed to your salvation is you sinned and God saves. That's how salvation works. You do the sinning and God does the saving. That's the partnership because it's grace. It's unmerited favor. It's unmerited. You do not work for it. But secondly, not only is it unmerited, it is freely given. What makes God's grace amazing grace is that it's never done out of obligation. It's never done out of obligation. God is not, does not owe anyone His grace. The moment God makes grace an obligation, it ceases to be grace. By definition, grace is freely given to whomever and whoever God decides and chooses. That's what makes it grace. It's a gracious bestowal of unmerited divine favor. That's what the text says. That's what the Bible teaches. Secondly, salvation is not only by grace, but it's also through Christ. It's also through Christ. He says, for grace of, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. That phrase appeared is later used in chapter 3, verse 4, where if you just look down in your Bibles, it says, but when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by works which He did in righteousness. So this appearing of God's grace is really a a picture of the incarnation of Christ. When Christ came to the earth, that's a picture of grace. That's a picture of grace. And the one thing we need to remember is salvation has always been by grace. Even in the Old Testament, it's always been by grace. The only thing that they did not understand in the Old Testament was they knew it was a gracious gift, but they've never seen grace personified. It's never been made visible until now. When Christ appears, grace appears to us in His birth, in His life. John says this in his Gospel, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He who was in the beginning was God. So there's an attribution to Christ. He's attributed as God. And not only is He God, but He comes and dwells among us in John chapter 1, verse 14, and He's described as the begotten of God, full of grace and truth. So salvation comes by grace through Christ and is for all men. Grace saves all kinds of men. Now we want to be careful here because it says here, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Notice it does not say that all of mankind will be saved. It doesn't say all of mankind will be saved. And also there's some translation differences here. If you're reading from a different translation, I'm reading from... Uh, the NAS, some of you may be reading from the ESV. Here's how the translations break it up. It says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. That's the ESV and the NAS. Or some of you may have the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It says, Or with salvation. And some of you still have the NIV. 
And it says offering salvation to all men. Why the differences between bringing with salvation or offering salvation? The reason why is because in the original, there is no participle for bringing or offering. This is how it reads. The grace of God has appeared, salvation to all men. The grace of God appears, salvation to all men. That is to say, the cause of salvation is grace. The emphasis is grace. God's grace is what saves people, and not just people, all kinds of people, all different kinds of men. That's what he means by salvation has come to all men. Now, how do we know it means all kinds of men? Because in the context, that's exactly what Paul has been talking about. All kinds of men in the first ten verses. He talks about the different kinds of men in the church, the older men verse 2, are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in the faith. Older women, and then younger women, and then younger men, and then those who are slaves, and then those who are pastors. He's describing all kinds of men, all kinds of people. So, dear friends, this is good news, because that means that God can save all kinds of people, which means God can save anyone. He can save anyone. God's saving grace is unmerited. You don't work for it. You don't have to work for it. He freely gives it. And I want to add one more aspect to this definition of God's grace. It's unmerited. It's freely given. And it's always to the sinner. God's saving grace is unmerited, freely given, and it's always to the sinner. Who receives this grace? I'll tell you who, don't, who won't receive it. It's the proud. Who won't receive it is the wise. The one who will receive it is the one who says, have mercy on me, the sinner. Just like the tax collector in Luke 18 who beat his breast. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Grace needs a dance partner and the dance partner of grace is always the sinner. And that's how it works. The moment you say to yourself, I'm actually good enough, I can make it on my own, God will withhold his grace because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So God's grace is able to save all kinds of people. And that may be you this morning, that you might be in the place where you need God's grace and you are opposing it because you might be saying to yourself, I think I can make it on my own. Christianity is a crux. It's a handicap. I don't need it. I can do it on my own. God wants to save sinners. Grace attaches itself to sinners. Not to those who are righteous. Jesus did not come for the righteous, but to sinners. So God's grace is something we need to know because God's grace saves us. God's grace saves us. Secondly, the second thing I want to point out to your attention about grace is not only does God, God's grace save us, but God's grace also transforms us. Look at verse 12. It says this, Instructing us, denying ungodliness and worldly desires that we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Have you ever thought about that? That God's grace transforms us? Not everyone believes this anymore. The grace of God is no longer believed as a doctrine that can change you and transform you and make you become more and more like Christ. That's not believed anymore. In fact, there is a movement in the church known as the Grace Revolution, also known as the Grace Movement, also known as the Awakening Grace Movement. And for those that are opposed to that movement, like myself, it's been called the hyper-grace movement. And the reason why it's called the hyper-grace movement is because there's an overemphasis on grace. Such an emphasis means that there's no longer obedience required. Obedience, repentance is no longer required. Now, without naming authors or preachers of this movement, I want to list to you the four main affirmations and denials of this movement of what they believe, this hyper-grace movement. Number one, this is what they believe. God requires nothing of His adopted children other than to receive grace. God requires nothing of His adopted children but just to receive grace. That's one of the things that they believe. The other tenet of their uh, belief is God is always pleased with us and can never be disappointed in us because of God's grace. That's what they believe. God is always, hear that, always pleased with us. Never disappointed. Clearly, that's not what the Bible teaches. Ephesians 4.30 says, The Spirit is grieved by our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, Therefore, we have as our ambition, 
whether at home or absent, we make it our aim to always be pleasing to Him. The third tenet of this movement is that the Christian should never experience conviction of sin from the Spirit. They believe that because you're under grace, you should no longer experience conviction of your sin. Just think about that. That's what they believe. There's no more godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There's no more brokenness that you ought to feel. No more conviction of sin. Because it all happened once and you no longer need to feel that. The fourth tenet, the fourth tenet of what they believe is this. The only form of repentance that God requires is a change of mind, not behavior. Repentance is now defined only in the realm of your mind. But your behavior doesn't matter. You can live however you want to live because all that's changed is your mind, not your behavior. Because they've narrowed down the definition of repentance by, by the word definition of metanoia. It's only in the mind. Clearly, the New Testament does not teach this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Remember the when Jesus visits the churches of Asia Minor, the seven churches, this is what he had to say about the church of Ephesus. He says this to them, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Repentance requires action. It's never just of the mind. It requires behavior. It's never just of the mind. This is what these uh, well-intentioned people believe these Christians, this is what they believe. I don't believe they're heretics. I don't believe that they are unsaved or anything like that. I do believe that they are in error. Most of them come from a legalistic background, a heavy-handed background. They grew up in a very legalistic upbringing in the church. And so what they have never experienced was grace. And so when they get understand grace, it's like a breath of fresh air. And so they love grace. Praise God that they've discovered grace. But just like anything in the history of the church, you swing from one pendulum all the way to the other. And so now they fall into this error of antinomianism, which is anti-law. They come from legalism, which is law-keeping, into anti-law, antinomianism, which means no law. I don't have to obey. I don't have to repent. It's all under grace. Obedience is not required. Repentance is not required. And here's why I bring this up, because this is probably what was happening in Titus. This was probably what was happening in the church of Crete where people love grace, but they don't realize that grace actually changes them. And this is harmful. This is harmful for the, the church then. It's harmful for the church now. Imagine if you buy into this theology that it's all under grace, that your behavior does not matter. Imagine if you fall into this hyper-grace mentality. This is what it would look like. You're going to damage relationships by your behavior. Your testimony to the world will be tarnished. The Christ that you represent will be looked down upon because you don't care about your behavior. And then your example to your family, your, your lifestyle does not matter. There are pastors who believe this and are getting divorced and remarrying and getting back into the pulpit again because it's all under grace. This is a new movement, but it's an old movement. It happened in the island of Crete, more than likely, because this is why Paul had to address them. He wants to show them, listen, grace saves you. Grace is able to save you, but grace also is able to change you. It's also able to change you. That's why he says in verse 12, instructing us. Instructing us. Who is instructing us? The subject of the sentence is still the grace of God in verse 11. That's the subject. The grace of God has appeared. And what else does the grace of God do? It instructs us. Another way of saying it is it trains us. Or some translation might say schooling us or disciplining us. Grace is like a school teacher. It's like a professor. It's like a teacher telling you what to do. And here's what it tells you to do. It, it, it wants to tell you that you can be changed. You can be transformed. And here's the first way that grace changes us. It changes us devotionally. It changes us devotionally. He says in verse 12, Instructing us, what does he teach? What does grace teach? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Grace changes our devotion. 
by teaching us to deny this ungodly world system and its worldly desires. And that's very familiar to me because there are times when I can sense my mind becoming more ungodly, my, my affections, my desires becoming more and more worldly. You ever find yourself consumed by the world, comparing yourself, wanting what the world has and you don't have it? One author put it this way, the greatest challenge facing American evangelicals is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Spurgeon said it this way, I believe that the one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Now, what is worldliness? What is it? If we're to deny worldliness and worldly desires and ungodliness, what is it? David Wells, uh, a, a professor, author, evangelical, who has been the first really to, to speak out against postmodernity in the late 90s, early 2000s, wrote in his books this definition. He says this, Worldliness is, quote, the system of values in any given age, which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and His truth from the world and makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. That's worldliness. When sin all of a sudden starts to look, yeah, I'd like to do that. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not too bad. That's okay. Look at that righteous people. That's weird. Look at that person. He's so... High and holy. He's on his holy high horse, as we have in, these, in our modern vernacular. So what David Wells is saying, it's really an exchange of definitions. It's the language of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, which says this, There are those who call evil good, and good evil. Those who call darkness for light, and light for darkness. Those who call bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. That's what's going on. It's the same language of Romans chapter 1, verse 25, where there's an exchange of the truth of God for a lie. Worldliness is a redefining of the, of the world's rules. It's a redefining of God's rules and God's ways. And so the first thing God changes us is our devotion. It moves us from our devotion to the world and our devotion to Christ by telling us to abandon these desires from the world and abandon these uh, affections of ungodliness because the base desires of this world is fallen and it wants to make sin more and more looking normal. You see this in your schools, don't you? You see this in the curricula that is now coming through the school system. Sin becomes more and more normal. That's worldliness. Not just in curriculum, it's in music, it's in every system, it's in your money, it's in your finances, it's in every aspect of our society because we live in this fallen world. And so the, the, the way grace teaches us is be aware, be aware of this world system that wants your devotion. Deny your heart's desires for that. Instead, be devoted to God. Secondly, not only does grace change us devotionally, it changes us privately. Privately, Look at in verse 12. He says, instructing us to, do, to, to deny our, our devotions here from the world. And then he says in, in the second half of that, that we should live sensibly. We should live sensibly. That word sensibly means uh, self-control. It's what Paul said, young men, here's the one thing that you are to do. Live sensibly. Have self-control. Be sober-minded. Be sober in your, act, in your actions. It's and the reason why I say it's private is because no one sees this. To be sensible is something you do in private. That's where it begins. You do that in private in your own time. You control your human faculties. You control your mind. You control your tongue. You control your thoughts, your affections, your, 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 your temptations. That's all inward. And it's private. No one sees this. God does this to us. The grace of God does this by by disciplining us to have sensibilities that are under His control. In fact, if you think of the nine singular fruit of the Spirit, the nine fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the last one is 
self-control. That's the most important one because your love is determined by self-control. Your patience, you can only have so much patience because of your self-control. Your kindness is controlled by your self-control. All those other fruit of the Spirit is determined by this one fruit of the Spirit known as self-control. That's how vital it is. It's inward. It's private. No one sees it. And God is able to change us. The grace of God changes us from the inside to live sensibly. He changes us devotionally, privately, and also thirdly, He changes us publicly. He says not only are we to live sensibly, but to live righteously. That is to say, live an outward life where we do right in front of others. There's a rightness to what we want to do, a, 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 a correctness to what we do. We want to do not what the world is doing, but we want to do what's right. You behave, you act, you serve, you minister, and do what is right, even though no one is looking. Or if someone is doing, you want to do the right thing, you don't want to scam people, you, you don't want to take advantage of people, you want to do what's right. You want to pay what you owe. You don't want to endlessly borrow and borrow, borrow. You want to give back things that you, you've borrowed. You do what's right. You pay your taxes. You submit to the government. You do things that are right. And it's visible because you've not only been changed in your devotions, in your minds, but now you've been changed publicly. Others see this about you. The grace of God changes you so that others now see. There's a difference in this man. There's a difference in this woman. This person is different because now they're living righteously. And the grace of God trains us, instructs us to change and live righteously before others. But lastly, the grace of God not only changes us publicly, but also changes us contagiously. Am I having too much fun with these adverbs? <laughs> Changing us contagiously. Now, what do I mean? He says, live godly. Live in, a, live in all godliness. To live in godly in this present age. The grace of God is so evident that it rubs off on people. That's what godliness is. Godliness is you rubbing off on other people. It's like a virus that's contagious. It's something that is more caught than taught. See, see doctrine, theology, that, that's all understood, that's taught. But what often needs the church needs is not to be necessarily taught, but there's a godliness that must be caught, a rubbing off, uh, a spreading like leaven in the church. There ought to be godliness that spreads and this is the, that's why older women are to be reverent in the faith. They're to be examples. They're to have godly character about them so that they can be an example to spread that godliness to younger women. It must spread. It must spread. And so grace enables us to live in such a way. Because think of, think of it. It starts in our devotion. It starts in our inward self-control, our sensibilities from the inside. Then it moves to our outward uh, 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 actions in our righteousness in living righteously and then it infects other people in our godliness God literally changes us by His grace from the inside out and the hyper grace movement wants you to abandon obedience to forsake repentance to reject the Spirit's conviction of sin Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book on this I, I read this book a few years ago it has a weird title and it's about a weird event that took place in history known as the Merrow Controversy. The title of the book is called The Whole Christ. And he, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, says that antinomianism and legalism are, are not necessarily, they're not opposites, but they are evil allies in Satan's bitter war against Christ. He calls them non-identical twins that emerge from the same womb of Satan. That's what it is. Oftentimes we think of legalism, oh, okay, I'd rather be that than, uh, than to be a grace freewheeler free over here that just, hey, everything is grace. Actually, they're both wicked, they're both evil, they both will condemn you to hell. That's how evil they both are. And so God says this, and what Christians must do in every generation is avoid and not veer off into legalism, of the soul-destroying legalism of law-keeping, or the soul-destroying antinomianism of soul-destroying disobedience to God. What we need is grace that transforms us and because God's grace saves us. Right in the middle. We want to maintain both. God's grace saves us and God's grace transforms us. Third, the third thing that we, that, that we need to learn about God's grace is not only does it transforms us, but it also purifies us. It purifies us. 
Look in verse 13. He says this, Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Zealous for good works. I mean, that, that's a whole long section. But here's what grace does. It purifies us. The grace of God purifies us. It purifies us. And here's how it purifies us. It causes us to anticipate or, or look for the return of Christ. It, it purifies us by allowing us to look forward to Christ's return. And notice how this reunion with Christ is described. He says that we are to be looking for this, what he calls a blessed hope. A blessed hope. There's an anticipation to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it's known as this blessed hope. In the first coming, he was the suffering servant. But in his second coming, he will be the conquering king. In his first coming, his glory was veiled, but in his second coming, he will be glory revealed. In his first coming, he was judged by men. In his second coming, he will judge all men. For believers, this is called the blessed hope because we long to be with our Savior and to be with our God. But for unbelievers, this is a terrifying judgment where they meet their eternal judge. But for the Christians, it's a longing. It's a longing. And as we long, we are made pure. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to the right and go to 1 John chapter 3 and read how when we long for the return of Christ, when we long for it, this is what happens to us. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when He is manifested, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. But there's that longing. Now watch this in verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. There is a purifying aspect when we long for Christ's return. And it makes perfect sense why that is. When that letter to Diognetus was written, the Christians were living as if this was not their home. They lived in the place of the Greeks and of the barbarians. That is to say, they didn't move when times got tough. They didn't get up and leave California and go to Texas. They stayed where the Greeks and the barbarians were. They stayed there. And as they stayed there, they knew that this is not their home. Ultimately, it's in heaven. Because they were longing to see Christ and His return. And as they did so, their priorities changed. Their investments changed. This is not where I will spend the rest of my life. My possessions will change. Because I have a prize that's in front of me. There's people that I need to spend time with. That's what matters. That's where I want to spend my life. And all of those things change. And when you do that, as you long for Christ's return, it will purify you. And why is the return of Christ so important and so significant for our purity? Because there is this idea that at any moment Christ could come. And we don't know what will we be found doing when He returns. What will we be found doing when the imminent return of Christ comes? What will we be found doing? Will we be found, as Piper famously said, collecting seashells? Or will we be serving in the church, discipling one person, allowing our godliness to spread to other people, allowing our righteousness to show before other people, something private that no one sees? You know who sees? God sees. God sees your godliness. God sees your faithfulness. God sees your service. God sees it all. And it fascinates me that there are people so excited about how Elon Musk, the billionaire, has now purchased Twitter. And so people are saying, wow, finally my tweets are going to be made known because it's been you know, blocked and all this and that. And, and all the things that I have been trying to say that are of conservative values, they've been blocked. And the only thing that's been mentioned, everything that's liberal and all these conservatives are, yay, Elon. One thing people don't recognize is every tweet, every thought, God knows. 
You don't need an Elon Musk to make what's your thoughts and intentions known. God knows. God knows everything that you want to say, even before you say it, even your thought from afar, God knows. He knows. And so He wants us to long for His return because He will, as we do this, he will, we will purify ourselves. Getting busy living this one life, this one brief life. Secondly, the grace of God purifies us as we long for Christ's return, but also by removing every lawless deed. Go back to Titus. He says that we should look for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. It says this longing for His hope because He will do this. He will redeem us from all lawlessness, from every lawless deed. And grace purifies us. From every lawless deed. Now, let me ask you are, you, are you are you tired of your sin? Aren't you tired of all the sins that you've been committing? The older, the older I get, the more sick I am of my sin. The more I sense my sin more and more. And I always wondered about that. And people will say, that around me and things like that, they said, you're, you're actually sinning less. I see you sinning less, but I don't feel like I'm sinning less. I feel like I'm sinning more. And I thought, that's weird, because as a young Christian, I always thought that when I'm his age, I should master this area of my life. And certainly God has been gracious to allow me to have victory in youthful desires that were once uh, the part of being a young man, those lustful desires. God has given me victory over this, but there's other sins now as an older man that I'm finding myself falling into or finding myself succumbing to or finding myself aware of these sins. And I, 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 first of all, I want to encourage younger men that you can have victory over these sins, but when you do, there will be new sins that you will discover. Why is that? Why is that? Why is it that the older we get, we sense more and more sins in our older age. It's because the grace of God shows you the holiness of God and you sense more and more of your sinfulness. You sense more and more of your sinfulness. I thought I was the only one that felt this and then I read my New Testament and I realized that the Apostle Paul felt this way. The Apostle Paul felt this way. Now we don't know how old Paul was when he said these things, but what we do know is the 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 date of when he wrote these books. He said three times that Paul was a sinner. He said it three times across three different books. Now, I want to start with the earliest book that Paul said this. I just want you to observe with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, Paul says this. This was written in A.D. 55. A.D. 55. Paul says that I am the least of all the apostles. So remember at the time there were 12 apostles. There was Judas, he gets replaced by Matthias, so there's 12, and then Paul comes late as one stillborn, he says. He's the 13th apostle, and he says, out of all the apostles, I'm the least. That's in 1 Corinthians, written in AD 55. Five years later, Paul becomes, he's maturing as a Christian. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 8, this was written in AD 60, he says this, I am the least of all the saints. Not just the apostles, but now I'm the least of all the saints. And then in AD 62, in the book of 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this, I am the chief of sinners. What's happening? Paul is growing and maturing as a Christian, but over time he's sensing more and more of his sin. And so longing for Christ's return is so glorious because he will one day redeem us from every sin. Don't you look forward to that day when Christ will come and actually remove you from all your sin. He will match your new heart with a new body that it will be free from the cancer of sin. That's going to be a wonderful day when Christ returns. When He returns, He will one day give us this body that is free from sin's infection. Instead, what will be running through our veins will be nothing but the righteousness of Christ in us. But right now, in this age, we are, in this present age, we are growing more and more in our senses of the, our awareness of sin. That's why he would say in Romans chapter 7, I do the things I don't want to do and I 
don't do the things that I should do. Wretched man that I am. Why does he say that? Because as if evil is right there with me. Oh, that's why we long that we would be redeemed. Not just for some deeds, but for every lawless deed. And as we do that, Lord, would you do this? Lord, would you come quickly? Lord, return. Grace teaches us this. Grace teaches us on how to to live by looking and longing and anticipating Christ's return. Thirdly, the grace of God purifies us, not just by longing for Christ's return, but also by removing every lawless deed. And thirdly, by making us zealous, by making us zealous for good deeds. By making us zealous for good deeds. The final way God's grace purifies us is by making us eager, eager to do good works. This is the first time Paul says it in Titus, in verse 14, making us eager, zealous, fanatic is the idea. Zealous, because there was Simon the zealot, the one who was fanatical. That's what we ought to be regarding good works. And this idea of good works begins here and it continues to permeate the book of Titus. He says it again in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed or every good work. And then he says it again in chapter 3, verse 8. He says this, that those who have believed in God will be intent to lead in good works or in good deeds. These are good and profitable. And he says it again in verse 14 at the end. And our people, Paul says to Titus, our people must also learn to lead in good works. Good works. Good deeds. What is it that will motivate Christians to do good works? It's the return of Christ. The return of Christ. God's grace. It's a grace that we would be aware of the Lord's return. God's grace is teaching us to anticipate and wait for Christ's return. That we would be found serving others as we wait. That in these days that are short, that we would be found not like the world lying, full of laziness, like lazy beasts, just like in the island of Crete, but working hard, being zealous, serving one another. And this is really the ultimate picture of grace, is how we work, how we do our good deeds. Martin Luther famously said that we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. What he meant is that true saving faith is always accompanied by good works, by good deeds. So if you are allergic to good deeds, that is not what grace does. Grace makes you a person of good deeds. It should be something that we are identified by, our good works. And where can we do our good works? Well, we can start in the workplace. We can start in the workplace. The Puritan Cotton Mather had this to say about work. Cotton Mather said this about work. He said this, quote, A Christian should be able to give a good account, not only what is his occupation, but also what he is in his occupation. It is not enough that a Christian have an occupation, but that he must mind his occupation as it becomes a Christian. Your testimony in the workplace, your hard work ethic, that's a picture of what it means to be a Christian. And the more you long for Christ's return, the more you long and anticipate his return, you will be purified in your work in the workplace. That translates into your work in the home. That translates into your work in the church. All these areas of your life should be of the same note. There shouldn't be different variances. It should be of the same note of hard working. Christians ought to be the ones in the workplace that get promoted. Christians ought to be in the workplaces that get the raises. They should be the ones that are leading because they are hard workers. They're not like those in Crete that are identified by laziness. Liars. They actually don't do any work. They're lying about their work to their employer. They are hard workers. They're not gluttonous. They actually are self-controlled. And the grace of God will instruct us to live a life in such a way that we are under that type of control and zealous for good works. And that starts on the inside and it translates all the way to the outside. Lastly, and I'll end here, the grace of God protects us. The grace of God protects us. Go back to Titus, verse 15. It ends in this, in in these four imperatives. That's where all the verbs are. He saves it for the end. There's no imperatives until now. 
In verse 15 he says, These things, Titus, speak, exhort, reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Here is how grace protects us. Here's how grace protects us. First, grace protects us with elders who will speak. Elders who will speak. And that word speak is just common speech. This is not formal speech. It's the word that is used when you're talking to people. It's what Jesus did when he was talking to the crowds. It's what Jesus did when he was talking to the disciples. It's common speech. It's the kind of speech that takes place when you have someone over. The idea is there needs to be an elder like Titus who is able to speak regularly to people. This is where we often have discipleship. Is where plain speech takes place. How are you doing? How, how, how is that request that you, you mentioned in our prayer meeting the other night? How's your work? How, how are things with your, 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 your son, with your father? How's your relationship there going? Remember that one thing that we were praying for? How's that going? Plain speech. Plain speech. Regular speech. Constant speech. That's what will protect grace in the church. Grace that shows people, that, whoa, 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 you're going too far off to the left. You're entering into legalism here. Make sure you, you, you also understand that you want to be gracious in not only, God's grace is not only in your salvation, but also in your activity. You, you don't want to veer off. Plain speech. And discipleship is how this takes place. Elders who disciple, who train others. That's how grace protects the church. Uh, Tony uh, Payne and Colin Marshall, two men from Australia, wrote a book uh, entitled The Trellis and the Vine. And we read this book um, several years ago. It's a book about discipleship. It's a book about ministry. Great book. I recommend it to you. In the very end of the book, he gives this illustration. And I, I, I can't believe he gave this illustration. The illustration that he gave was, imagine, quote, imagine... This was written in 2009. 2009. He says, Imagine that there is a worldwide pandemic and your church is closed down. He says this, Imagine that the pandemic swept through the part of the world and that all public assemblies of more than three people were banned by the government for reasons of public health and safety. How would your congregation of 120 members continue to function with no regular church meetings of any kind and no home groups. When he wrote that, I thought that will never happen in the notes of my book. I said, That's a dumb example. But his point was simply this. If the church were to be closed off, if the church were somehow be forced to not meet, will truth continue in the church? And he says this, the only way truth will permeate in the churches, if there's constant conversations, if there's discipleship taking place, if there's discipleship taking place, common plain speech in the lives of people, elders, pastors, are you modeling this? Is what he's trying to say in that book. Are you modeling this? Is there conversations where truth is being disseminated in plain, everyday, normal life? Because that's how grace is, that's how grace protects the church by leaders who speak plainly, regularly. Elders who speak regularly and plainly through informal gatherings such as discipleship, meetings, lunches, dinners, hospitality, all those areas. But secondly, there's also a way that grace protects us and that's through elders who not only speak but elders who preach. And he says this, exhort. He uses this word exhortation to exhort and reprove. To exhort and reprove. That phrase, exhort and reprove, is the qualification of the elder. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. He talks about the, the life and the character, and then the one skill that the elder is to have in verse 9, it says this, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. He needs to do both. He needs to do both. Because that's what an elder does. Not only must he do both, but he must do it with authority. With all authority. Why the admonition of authority? Why should the elders speak with authority? Because false teachers are going to come. 
in the church. There's going to be those that oppose the truth. There's going to be those that come in with hyper-grace. There's going to be those that come in with a new perspective of justification by faith, a new doctrine, a new form of justice that's going to come through. And they need, when the church needs men who will preach and exhort and reprove. John Calvin said that an elder is to have two voices, one voice to shepherd the flock, the other voice to drive away the wolves. God's, God gives grace to the church by giving her elders who will preach about God's grace. The absence of preaching God's grace will weaken the church, harm the church, because the church will fall into either legalism or antinomianism, meritorious law-keeping or disobedient law-breaking, both identical twins that emerge from the same womb. See, grace protects the church through biblical preaching. Lastly, grace protects the church with elders who take a stand. The very last sentence he says in verse 15, let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. Titus is told not to let anyone look down on you, Titus. Don't let anyone disregard you, Titus. Why would Paul tell Titus not to let anyone disregard him? Because on the island of Crete, there were those living licentious lifestyles, calling themselves Christians, but have unchanged lives. And they're telling others that they're Christians and they're spreading things in the church that are not becoming of a Christian, but they're saying that I live in grace. I live all in grace, but their behaviors have never been modified, never been changed, never been transformed by the grace of God. And so they want to live a lifestyle free of obedience, free of repentance. And so when an elder comes and corrects them, that elder will be under great pressure. And so Paul is telling elders, take a stand. Take a stand. Don't let anyone disregard you. Take a stand. God's grace protects the church with elders who will take a stand. Let no one disregard you. Oh, church, God has given us His design plans for His church. I don't want to deviate from His design. I don't want to deviate from this fundamental teaching that will endure that every generation will understand salvation by grace and transformation by grace. We need to be changed. We need to be purified by this grace. We need to be protected by this grace because our souls will eternally be affected either into eternity with he- in heaven with Christ or in eternity apart from Christ in eternal judgment and torment in hell. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, oh, I pray, help us, keep us. Keep us in the truth. Oh, I pray, help us to understand that your grace not only saves us, but your grace changes us. Oh, how we long for change. Forgive us for longing for a different kind of change, a change that this world wants to offer. But instead, help us to be aligned to the kind of change that you give. One that is empowered by grace, not one that is empowered by our own self-will, our own attempts our own efforts, but one where we beg you, God, change us. Oh, God, change us. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Oh, Father, thank you for this truth. I pray that you would make the Cornerstone Bible Church a place where grace is lifted up because Christ is lifted up. That grace is the what saves us, but grace is also what will change us and sanctifies us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.